This show was made at Access Radio Taranaki with help from New Zealand On Air. To find more local content, go to www.accessradiotaranaki.com. Our mission here at the Talking Taiao podcast is to inspire and support people, businesses and communities to value the environment and act to prioritise sustainability. We would like to highlight our region's efforts in acting as guardians of the land, Taranaki Tiaki Taiao, while weaving Te Reo Māori and Matauranga within our conversations to help our wider community learn through a positive, educational and uplifting lens. Hello, listeners, and welcome again to Talking Taiao. Shout out to the team at Access Radio Taranaki for their awesome mahi and supporting our podcast. So, jumping straight into it, I'd like to introduce a sustainable, a sustainability champion um, who is also whose partner is also another sustainability and conservation um, champ, and um, they have a long history in actively keyword. Activate, uh, advocating, oh gosh, what is wrong with my mouth hole today? <laughs> they have a long history in actively advocating and arguing for not only the environment, but for tangata whenua and indigenous rights. So thank you for coming along, Oris. Tēnā koutou, Lisa. Tēnā koutou, tēnā te mihi. Kia koutou, wakarongo ki enei kōrero. Tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou. Kia ora. So, um... Just to kick it off, would you like to introduce your um, background, where you come from and how you ended up here? Sure. Thanks, Elvisa. Thanks for having me on your show. It's, it's awesome to be on Access Radio. Uh, I used to make programs here a decade ago, and it's just cool that 104.4 is still going strong. So awesome to be in the space. Kia ora. Thanks, thanks again. Um, yeah, um, I grew up in, in Switzerland on the other side of the planet, so my mountains are, are gigantic and huge, covered in snow most, most of the time of the year. And, um, yeah, I, I grew up in a city called Basel along the River of Rhine, which is one of, you know, one of the biggest catchments over in Europe. Beautiful river, although it was polluted by, by uh, the Swiss pharmaceutical industry back in the 1980s. But mm-hmm. um, we swim in it again, so um, it's alive again, which is cool. But, um, yeah, I, I moved to New Zealand initially when I was um, 15, 16 as an exchange student. Spent a year in Palmerston North, and then, uh, yeah, I moved here in 2003, sort of, Permanently, I suppose, and been living in Aotearoa since. Moved to Taranaki in probably 2008. Uh, we've lived, Emily and I, my partner, have lived on the Taranaki coast since then. At Parihaka initially, now we live down the road in Pongarehu. We think it's the, the centre of the universe, the Pito Tao, the belly button of the world. So, um, yeah, we. Um, we enjoy living at the coast, and that's where we have two kids and sort of a lifestyle block, I suppose. And yeah, been um, politically active for quite some time. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Yeah. I. Um, yeah. Thank you for uh, sharing that background, that long journey in such a short um, time frame, because <laughs> that is a big way to travel to end up doing what you're doing. Um, what are some challenges that you've faced as uh, in, in activism? Yeah, sure. Like, I, I got into activism, I suppose, at a really early age through, through my family. My, my parents were both 
politically active. Mum was a city councillor back home, uh, working mostly in public transport actually and, and <laughs> promoting cycle lanes. That was kind of her, her big baby. And um, dad was always involved in education and policy. So in a way, um, activism for me, or at least politics, was always part of family life. Like, mm. you know, handing out leaflets for the Social Democratic Party from a young age kind <laughs> of thing. Um, you know, not, not super radical activism at all, but, but at least politically engaged. So, you know, at the dinner table, we'd be, dis we'd be discussing world affairs, we'd be discussing the upcoming elections or the upcoming referendum that we have regularly in Switzerland and Swiss politics. So... Uh, it was probably at the age of 14, 15 that I started thinking more deeply about the world and about the economy and about um, our political arrangements around our political decision-making systems. So, I th I, you know, sort of a key moment that I remember was reading, and this is, you know, this is a bit, bit corny, but, you know, reading um, Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto at the age of 14, it was like, boom, it was like a, a big thing to read uh, that old document and, and it still inspired me. The idea of, you know, collective liberation of all the oppressed was, was, was a wonderful idea that was still, is still very, very relevant to this day. Um, but I suppose, um, you know, over the years I've, I've adapted and changed and thought more deeply and widely about my politics and, and where I stand. So I suppose that the biggest challenge um, is, you know, is, is after a, a long and hard campaign is finding the energy again to pull yourself up and, and keep going. Because in, in a way, activism um, for many of us has become an intergenerational thing, you know, mm -hmm. a, a, a legacy thing that you, that you carry on. For, for me and my family, maybe not such a long legacy as for my, for my partner's family, who's, you know, a, a long legacy of, of, of involvement politically. Uh, you know, 150 years of colonialism is a, is a long time for trauma, but also a long time of resistance um, through the generations for, for her, for example. So it's, it's, it's that challenge of pulling yourself up and, and, and fighting, finding that passion and that energy to keep going, I suppose. So, um, yeah, but it's uh, once, you're, once you're in the movement, I suppose you, you're always part of something bigger than yourself. And that's what I suppose is the drive and is what keeps you going yeah. yeah same same a lot of that resonates with me like keeping going like being the only under 40 on the Taranaki Regional Council I have to find the purpose and in, in the drive behind why I'm doing it and and um and engaging with not just the politics but the people that it affects as well so um yeah that's a lot of that um I can relate to that. Um, and it's so important. Like, you see the impacts that collective engagement actually has on on decision decisions that are made by our leaders. And, like, and, and in some cases, like, they're damned if they do, if they do, but they're really damned if they don't kind of thing, and, and vice versa. So, yeah, it's being in politics is quite tough, but it's, it's good that we have people like yourself who are actually doing the research and trying their best to actually make keep a certain level of balance but also progress things forward otherwise you know you get stuck in the same cycles mm. that are creating the same problems um and so on um what what is the current voting age in we switzerland switzerland yeah, i think yeah. it's 18 although i think some cantons some districts have lowered it to 16 oh, okay but i think the difference in in the swiss political system is that we have 
we vote a lot, like we vote four or five times a year. So you don't just vote once every few years. Um, we have initiatives and referenda where you can pro propose ideas and where you can vote against laws that Parliament's enacted, both on a local and, and federal um, level. So it's, um, maybe there's a bit more engagement, but at the same time, you know, a large proportion of society in Switzerland is completely excluded from the decision-making process. Immigrants have no voting rights at all. So it's um, yeah. Even if they're residents? No, residents can't vote. No. Wow, no. okay. Yeah, I always learn something new in these podcasts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I suppose, like, in a way, in New Zealand, I find the way I study history or New Zealand history is that you know, there's a lot of vibrant, progressive struggles through the last 200 years of, of this country's history. Like, and, and we often forget that a lot of the, the benefits that we enjoy today are the results of struggle, of people actively engaging in the community, at the workplace, and fighting for better futures for, for their children, essentially. The fact that we have some, although they're limited, work, workers' rights mm. are the product of decades of organising of, of working people and I, I suppose the last 40 years of neoliberalism in this country in particular have sort of you know has been a, 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 an attempt by by the rich by the ruling class by whatever you want to call them to to kind of erode a lot of those victories that we've had mm. and sort of really hammer down that uh, idea of individualism of 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 the idea that that freedom is a, a, the concept of freedom is is associated with your own individual freedom, rather than this idea of a collective liberation, a collective freedom, and, and it probably started really in the in the 1980s with with Rogernomics. You know, that's really when the the gap between rich and poor started to grow bigger and bigger. Not saying that it was you know paradise before, not at all, but you know. If you look back at, at New Zealand's history, all these progressive movements, if we talk about the 1913 strike, for example, a massive uprising of working people across the country, or you know the 1951 waterfront lockout, or, or the movements for, for Māori land rights, you know, these are huge collective struggles. And in a way, the, the last 40 years, we've lost a lot of that, mm -hmm. I think, in the society, globally. You know, it's, it's a global phenomenon, neoliberalism. So it's like, how do we find that collective vision again? How do we find each other to, um, to find that collective power that we have? And once, that's the cool thing about being an activist. You know, once you experience that collective power, you all of a sudden you realize, yes, I can change the light bulb in my house to an LED, and that feels powerful. Not really, it kind of just <laughs> feels fluffy and cute and good. But once you sort of are involved in a political campaign where collectively you change the course of history or collectively you change a really bad thing from going to, to a good thing, you realise how much strength you have together, that, that solidarity within a group, that um, collective power that you, that you can gain by working together. So I think it's, that's really where the fire comes from of activism. It's, it's those moments when, when you feel like, yes, we're winning. Um, yeah, it's epic. Yeah, that's a that's a really good um, revelation, I guess, for people to hopefully experience one day. But for now, maybe for some, just to ponder on and think on, and maybe look more into. Hopefully, if you're part of a union, for instance, that's a really good starting point to learn more about collective 
action and how the impacts of, of those collect, uh, collectives, um, what they can achieve. So my next question, Urs, is to ask you, coming off the back of what you were talking about before the song, is how does collective activism or even collective action, if you'd prefer that, um, relate back to sustainability and conservation? Yeah, for sure. Like, it, in my view, there's sort of been this divide between the environmental movement and the social justice movement, and I guess the indigenous movement as well. Like, they, there's often they're sort of separated and they struggle to, the word we use is intersect, or, you know, they struggle to come together. And partially because, you know, a lot of the environmental movement is, is, is often not very, um, how do I say that, is, is struggles to come to terms with social justice or struggles to come to terms to support indigenous rights and vice versa. So we, we, we often kind of talk past each other, the, the social justice movement and the environmental movement. We struggle to, to come to terms with each other and support it and realise that actually we have similar, if not the same, goals in terms of, um, you know... Outcomes. In terms of outcomes, in terms of that, you know, the economy is destroying both the environment and, and is destroying our social lives as well and is harming us at the workplace every day. You know, that's where exploitation happens every day, not mm -hmm. just at the environment, but at your workplace. So I, th I think that's the exciting space for me. The exciting space is where movements intersect where they come together and, and an example for example is, uh, that, I, that I can think of straight away is um, the Bastion Point occupation in the 1970s at Takaparafa where um, the whanau there said this is the last bit of land within Auckland that we have left for our iwi for Ngāti we're going to hold the line here and occupy this land and as, as far as I know Unions said we're not going to go on site. We're going to support this occupation by not working there. So it was like the combination of indigenous rights and workers' rights, people coming together. So that's the exciting space. It's when social justice activists, climate activists, indigenous rights activists, all come together for for a common you know, the common advancement of our collective liberation. And um, so that's how it relates to sustainability for me. It's like. It's finding that exciting space of intersection where, where we have, where we share ideas, where we share passion, where we share um, collective action towards a better world for, for, our, for our kids, for our mokopuna. Yeah. And part of that sharing is, is um, actively listening as well and implementing what you've learned from the, the other groups. Um, I think in Aotearoa, New Zealand, we're starting to realise that Matauranga Māori is literally observational science, which is what Western science was, you know, is sort of based around um, just on in different ways. Um, so, yeah, I think there are some shifts going on, especially here in this country. We're very, I feel very, you know, lucky to to observe that and also to help contribute towards those decisions um, that are being made. Um, at TRC, we've had Modi uh, workshops with our environmental staff, which is really exciting. And, and that's sharing that knowledge with them. They may not 
be actively implementing any of that right now, but it's part of that process of collaboration and sharing that knowledge. So that's, yeah, that's really true. I didn't know about that event. I don't obviously know as much as you about um, political history and all that sort of stuff, but it kind of reminded, a moment in there reminded me of the moment, there's a, a viral video that went round of, of one of the police officers at Ihumato, um, Matao? Ihumato, yeah. Ihumato. Where he was singing a waiata with oh, the protesters, sure. and I was like, "That's such a beautiful moment." And obviously, like, there's mutual respect there and understanding in in those moments. And I feel like that has such a social impact on observers who see that and they see that. Oh, so you don't have to be like actively shooting each other like they do in America. And you see in those viral videos, we have a different um, uh, approach to these sorts of. Um, you know, uh, situations. And I think in our country, we do have a certain level. I, f- I really hope we retain that type of, um, th- those types of protests where there's, it's not super div- divisive. We are seeing some of that at the moment with the um, vaccine stuff, but in, uh, in those conservation and um, indigenous rights spaces, there is some collaboration and, and movement yeah, going. Yeah, for sure. And I, I suppose, you know, there's, there's lots of, like, to, to build a movement, say, for environmental justice, for social justice, there's lots of, there's lots of space within that movement, and there's lots of skills required to build a collective movement. There's a lot, lots of jobs to be filled, if you wish. Uh, I, I can't send your job description exactly, but, you know, by getting involved with others around the things that you care about, whether that's conservation, whether that's climate change, whether that's your hapu, your, your, your whānau land, whether it's your rights at your workplace. I think the key is, it doesn't matter so much where you get involved, the key is that you start getting involved and that you do so with others. Because rather than being pushed at individualist message of it's just on you, it's on you, the only way to save the climate is if you stop flying, the only way to to, to, um, save um, the environment is by, um, by... recycling more, like those kind of individualised messages are so strong in society. And while they're not bad as such, I think we're losing the bigger picture. The bigger picture is that our collective impact is so much bigger, you know, if we if we band together with others. And put pressure on those bigger Exactly, and industries. put pressure on, on the, one that are, the ones that are currently destroying our environment, the ones that are currently destroying our livelihoods, you know. The, 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 the politicians, the corporations, you know, the, the, the powerfuls, right? And our, our power is not uh, an individual power. Our power is indeed a, a collective power. And, um, yeah, so activism is, is lots of things, you know, but I think for me the key thing of being an activist is that I do it with others, mm. that, that we're part of a, a wider movement, a movement of movements, if you wish, um, that that pushes for change, that pushes for progressive change, that we, that we, you know, see an end to the continual cycle of exploitation of the environment, of people, of communities. So it, it means ending the colonial regime, if you wish. You know, 150 years of of destroying indigenous communities, just like we saw at Ihumato two years ago, in attempts to destroy an indigenous community. Why will we do that in 2019 in Aotearoa? Mm. You know, it's like those cycles got to end. And with those cycles ending, the trauma can be healed to some degree, right? And we yeah. can start better futures for, for our tamariki. Yeah. Um, 
Because sustainability is not just about the environment, it's about people as well. It's about cultures, sustaining, preserving our diverse cultures. And, you know, I love that New Zealand's multicultural. My mom's from the Philippines. And as I was sharing with you earlier, like learning more about Te Ao Māori and, and the history of Aotearoa and learning Te Reo Māori is fun. And, and I, I love it, but I... I realize, you know, it doesn't, be- Māori doesn't belong to me. It belongs to mana whenua and tangata whenua. But I, I occupy, I, I live here and this is, this is my home. Um, so that is my way of paying respect to the people who's, the First Nations, maybe um, you might say, the people who were here before we were here. And, um, but learning about the history of, of the Philippines, for instance, and how deep the colonization from different countries um, during history, how that has impacted the people there, how it has impacted, uh, caused so much poverty. Um, and now it's causing a lot of environmental, you know, to try to put, try to calibrate that poverty and, and provide more opportunities, there's more degradation in the environment. And then you've got smaller groups who are educated, but also realize, oh my gosh, we've actually allowed this not allowed this to happen but this is what happened has happened to our country and and they're fighting such a big fight over there because they're such a minority whereas here we we are very very lucky to have education more accessible to us than places like that so it's really interesting seeing how complex and difficult it might feel to um change these systems and undo some if not all the damage that has been caused but it all comes back to that collective um, sharing of knowledge shared education you don't have to go to university you know we live in the digital age where you can access information on the internet you can talk to people who are more qualified in those areas and then you can act together Mm. so there is a process and it's so good for your wairua when you are part of something like that as well totally and like you know within sustainability circles there's sort of a you know the the ultimate dream um is kind of you know your lifestyle block nuclear family Mm. and and grow food and and i'm living that life but i'm telling you that's not my dream no that's it's nice and it it, to some degree keeps me sane you know going into the garden uh working in our food forest is is yeah but you have the freedom to have a garden i live in a rental with a lawn and i'm not allowed to turn it into a garden what i'm trying to say is that until not too long ago humans lived in community Mm. and and some humans in fact many across the globe still do right and and you know i married into a maori whanau that is is still very much community life is, is kind of key to my partner's family and you know the activities that we do mm-hmm. and but all of us all all of us carry that within within our whakapapa if you wish that, mm. that we until quite recent times lived collectively lived in community and i think you know rather than aiming for the lifestyle block dream of you know it, it, it's not a dream you know it, it's it, it won't solve the climate crisis because once again, it's kind of that replacing your light bulb. Mm. Well, what the dream should be is that we live once again in community and collective spaces where we rely upon each other, where we help one another, based on concepts such as mutual aid, based on concepts such as you know solidarity, I suppose. And and I think it's it's 
sort of a shift back, if you wish, or a shift forwards to, to those principles of, of community life. And that can really have huge impacts in terms of, of you know, protecting the environment because it not just protects the environment, it actually protects our relationships with each other. It builds relationships, it, it holds us together, builds social cohesion. And you can do that within your neighbourhood. You know, you can do that within urban New Plymouth and, and go beyond the just introducing yourself to your neighbours. But start community initiatives within your street, whether that's street parties, gardens, whether it's festivals, whether it's whatever it may be. But for us at the coast, for example, we have a, I often talk about our swimming pool. It's a community-run swimming pool and, and every family buys a key for the season and literally the whole, whole coast that is Pungarehu, hangs out at the pool all summer. That's where we go. And it's run by volunteers with virtually no money, mm. and it's just epic. Mm. And it's one of those, like, it's almost, to me, there's almost a sacredness around it, that collective space. And it's also fragile, because it's based on the voluntary work of a couple of people, and if they fall sick or are over it, then things like that collapse. And we can see that kind of collapse with... Um, in rural communities all the time across across Taranaki. You know, the, you look at our rural halls, how they're falling apart. You look at the smaller settlements and towns, how shops have moved out due to the dairy industry getting bigger and bigger, needing less and less people to, to work it. You know, like within tw a 20k radius in Pungarehu, there's four closed primary schools. So that's four communities who kind of, over the, over the last 20 years, have fallen apart to the, due to the expansion of the dairy industry. And that has huge social impacts on people's lives, their mental health. Mm. So it's kind of, we need to think as of these collective institutions, whether they're swimming pools or whether mm. they're halls or whether they're marae or whether they're playgrounds or gardens as, you know, that's kind of our, our sacred space where we flourish together. I just had a revelation, like when I went on the bus from um, Ngamotu to, um, Kitty Kitty Door, Hamilton. Mm. Um, the, we picked up a whole bunch of students all along those rural roads, and then I was like, where are they going? And then I realised they were all going to the high schools and colleges and stuff for boarding school. And it's because there's no schools out there. Mm. It makes so much sense. Like, yeah, it's there's a lot of things that you don't realise why, mm. why it's like that. But, yeah, continuously learning about why that's happening. And the bus is a good example. Yeah. The, the bus is a, is a social space, right, where we say we're putting to collective needs of everyone first. Mm -hmm. Be and we bus together, not that we want those kids to have to bus for two hours to go to school. But, you know, within town, you know, getting around, prioritising collective ways of getting around over mm -hmm. the individual rights and needs of, of, of all of us who drive cars, mm -hmm. right? That's, that's where it's interesting. That's where we can create change. That's where we can bring our emissions mm -hmm. down. That's where we can build, you know lives that are worth living, you know, that are fun, that are exciting, where, you know, where people thrive, rather than just go to work, come home from work, watch a movie, have a drink, go to bed, <laughs> yeah. and repeat, Convey about that, that, sorry. Uh, repeat that forever in a day. That's not what life's meant to be. Life's meant to be about relationships, about, uh, about fun, about connecting, about having time to, to pursue your 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 desires, whether that's arts or music or writing or poetry, whether it's going for a dive or a surf, like it's that's what life is about, right? It's about connecting with mm. each other. So capitalism wants us to work, 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 and conform, 
And I think ultimately it's like, how do we get out of this hole that we've created? And the cool thing in, in this space is that, you know, some of these systems that seem so ingrained now have only been around for a very short amount of time. You know, humans lived on this planet for maybe, you know, our Homo sapiens, 200,000 years, the human species maybe 4 million or something, or less, right? So we haven't lived under authoritarian regimes or economic system that degrade the world for a very long time. Actually, for most of our presence on Earth, we lived quite harmoniously with each other and with our environment. So I believe that going back to that way of life is not too hard because we have done it for a long time. It's about deciding collectively that this, this exploitative way of being has to come to an end. And that is, that's what we in the climate movement mean by systematic change. We've got to change the systems, change the econo economic system, change the political system, and start dreaming again what life could be like if we relied upon each other, what life could be like for everyone to thrive in our community. And it's that vision that we carry as activists every day. And sometimes it's poetry, sometimes it's sad, and it's heavy and it's hard. And, you know, sometimes it's grief. But then there's those moments of liberation, of collective action, and then we keep going, and we keep going, and we keep going, because we, we, we have to. There's no other way. Yeah. 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 That we, yes. <laughs> Amen, brother. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's a big job, but we have to do it together. Um, mm. Otherwise, nothing will change. It will get better for people. Kia ora. Thank you for that. And thanks for being on Talking Taiao with me. Kia ora. Thanks for having me. It's, it's, a, it's a pleasure being here at Access Radio. Kia ora tata. Namahinui This show was first broadcast on Access Radio Taranaki 104.4 FM. Thanks to New Zealand On Air.